or what allows us to be happy. But Seligman and his crew were interested in what is the psychology of happiness, and what they started to do was they sponsored all of these clinical studies in different places where they interviewed people and they really focused on which people um, had the telltale signs of peace of mind and a sense of happiness in their life, purpose, joy, and which people were uh, overall dissatisfied. And due to this work, in the aftermath, there's now across the globe what's known as the World Happiness Report, where they do massive, massive studies of hundreds of thousands of people around the globe, and they crunch the numbers, and they rule out, you know, variables that have nothing to do with what is uh, under our control, and they try to see, okay, why are we happy and why are we not happy in life? What makes us have peace of mind and what creates suffering? Interestingly enough, again and again and again, whether it's the work of Seligman or uh, Daniel Kahneman who won the Nobel Prize for his research, they keep finding the same results. And pretty much there's only two factors. And if you think I'm going to say meditation, nope, that's not it. Uh, if you think I'm going to say uh, finding a job that pays enough that we can uh, uh, have a lot of, uh, you know, explore the world or travel or things like that, nope, that actually doesn't factor in human happiness. Uh, what they found over and over again is that there's two factors that lead us to be happy in life. The first factor is, and this is what we'll be focusing on largely today, is the ability to feel one's emotions and to express those emotions to people that are close to us in a way that's healthy for ourselves and safe that one ability to simply know what mood or state we're in and to be able to communicate it was found again and again and again to be one of the two most important factors in human happiness. The second is to have a livelihood or work that we believe benefits the greater good. In other words, not to have work that uh, in some way uh, makes money or provides a lot of security, but having work that allows us to make just enough that we can survive, but moreover our work in some way benefits others. This is because human beings are pack animals. One of the interesting uh, developments in the last 50 years of psychology is that the early belief that the human journey was one of individuation, separating from parents and finding core identities 
and being self-sufficient has been found out to, in fact, not in any way benefit human beings. What is a benefit is actually what was uh, first proposed by Mary Ainsworth, John Bowlby, Winnicott, and has now been verified by a wide array of important contemporary neuroscientists, such as Joseph Ledoux and Michael Gazzaniga and Matthew Lieberman and Alan Shore and on and on and on, which is that the advantage we have as a species has always been that we can connect with each other. We don't run particularly fast. We don't climb trees that well. We don't have shells. We don't even swim particularly well. But the one thing that allowed us to survive and thrive as a species was our ability to connect with each other and to form alliances or packs to protect each other, to have each other's backs. Human beings do this exceptionally well. To give you an idea of how well, when our species was first uh, 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 appearing in the African continent, there was another species the, um, that we were competing with. And they were, Neanderthals were actually bigger, faster, stronger, actually even had bigger brains than us. Any one of them could have killed any one of us. But the one thing that they didn't have was very little of their brains were set aside for connecting with each other. They died off. Human beings, we actually managed to, Homo sapiens actually managed to learn how to connect and bond together in such a way that we could actually defeat our greatest adversary and to thrive. What we found increasingly from the work of Shore and Matthew Lieberman is that there are actually very core parts of our brains that are set up to reward us for connecting with each other. And actually only one out of these four regions are set up to reward us for communicating through language, ideas. The other three, the emotional signaling of the facial muscles, which uses a part of your, your what's called the, vagal, the smart vagal system, the mirroring via your parietal lobe, and the emotional rewards in your right hemisphere are all set up to reward you and create positive emotions when you connect well with another human being. So what I'm like, I'd like to talk about today is just how we go about connecting safely with people in a way that we wind up experiencing greater happiness in our life. Some of the meditation tools I'll be doing will help us first connect with and hold the emotions and process them. And then much of the second day, I'll talk about how to safely find people 
and how to move into conversations and interactions with people where we learn how to express our needs in a way that is beneficial for us and actually develops a sense of real connectivity in our life so that we can actually uh, activate positive emotions and feelings of security and happiness. There was a fascinating study that was done by, I believe, Kahneman's people, or Jonathan Haidt's, I can't remember. Um, they compared uh, a group of wealthy, single white males living in San Diego who were uh, against a control group of uh, black women living in Buffalo and generally who were making significantly less income, many of whom were retired. Now, up until this study, most uh, people would have predicted that given the fact that San Diego is a very uh, hospitable climate and that uh, the white men experienced a lot of privilege and had significantly, uh, in this study, more economic resources, the expectation would be that they would be the group that would score higher on baseline happiness. In fact, it was so drastically the other way around, the black women in Buffalo trounced the white men to such a degree that they continually re-looked at the survey and tried to figure out what had happened, and they found that the significant difference is that the white men living in San Diego had no community. They would work hard, they would come home, and they would have very little emotional interactions with each other. On the other hand, the black women who lived in Buffalo actually connected in church groups, and they would show up for each other when they were sick. They would bring, they would gather when somebody had had a, uh, a real issue in their life. They felt connected. They felt emotionally seen by each other. Susan Piver then crunched all the different meta-analysis of human happiness and found the same result again, again, and again. And she wrote a book called The Village Effect about how the single cause of increasing human dissatisfaction in the West is simply due by, to the fact that we don't connect with each other well. So you might think, oh my goodness, what does meditation and Buddhism have to do with this? In fact, the Buddha was asked by his attendant, Ananda, is it true, Ananda asked the Buddha, that half of this path is connecting with other people. And the Buddha said, don't say that. That's not true. The entire path is built on connecting with other people. Kalyanamita, the Buddha said, is the absolute core of spiritual practice. So. Personally, when I do all my one-on-one -on -one work with individuals, that's along with being a Buddhist teacher, that's what I generally do for a living, I don't encourage people to go to only Buddhist communities. I encourage people to go to any community, 
any place where they can connect with others. It doesn't matter to me if it's... There's so many wonderful communities, Unitarian, Quaker, Hindu, all down the line, and they don't even have to be spiritual, 12-step organizations, any human support group that people have has been shown to make us happier. The reason that, um, again, this is so important is that half of our brains are set up specifically to monitor how well connected we are and to communicate with each other through emotions. It's called, if, you're, if you haven't guessed by now, your right hemisphere. Your left hemisphere is what is listening to me right now. It's what's churning through all these boring words and looking at my lips while I talk. It's where you hear the ideas that I'm expressing. But meanwhile, as you do all this with your left hemisphere, you think, you're conscious there, you use language there. But behind the scenes, there's another part of your brain, the entire right hemisphere, largely unconscious, sitting behind the scenes and evaluating, one, do I seem well attuned to you? Do I seem vaguely safe? How do you feel right now? Do you feel well-connected? Or do you feel like, oh, these are all my co-workers. Do I have to look a certain way? It's working behind the scenes, and it's creating what are called emotions or moods. And these emotion or moods are messages from this part of your brain letting you know how safely connected you feel to the tribe not just the people here, but to the world around you. That's what your emotions are. They're largely non-verbal signals from your right hemisphere letting you know, do I feel safely connected with other people in this moment, or do I not? Let's go through the list. Sadness is what we feel when we lose an attachment figure in our life. Fear is what we experience when we don't believe other members of the tribe, our tribe, that we belong to, will rally to our side when we face a dilemma. Guilt is what we feel when we wound somebody that we are close to. Shame is what we feel when we act in a way that we wouldn't want other people in our tribe to know about. Pride is what we feel when we act in a way that other people would approve of. All down the line, virtually every single human emotion outside of one is entirely relational based on how securely we feel connected to other people. The only emotion, in case you're wondering, is fear. You can feel that strong emotion if a truck is barreling down or there's a sudden... A tidal wave or some completely non-relational event occurring. But outside of that, every single emotion human beings have is based on how well connected we feel to other people. And the right hemisphere of our brains, the unconscious part, is constantly keeping track of how well connected do we feel that other people would rally to our sides, do we feel seen known? Do other people get what we're feeling? So, 
emotions signal themselves to us in different ways. They create internal states. They use a part of the uh, nerve system called the vagus, vagal vagus nerve, and that runs down the back of your neck to the front of your face, down the throat, to the heart, and to the stomach. And when you have a significant event where somebody you're close to says something really painful, or when you go through a relationship breakup, or when you lose someone, or when you connect really well with someone, you have, I have, shifts in what's called the vagal term. If you'd like to read about it, a wonderful um, researcher, psychologist, Amy Fredrickson, head of the psychology department of North Carolina, wrote a book called Love 2.0, and her work is devoted to studying the vagal vagus nerve system and the expression of emotions and what makes people happy. So when an important event happens, one way we know it is if it's fear, often our stomach will get tight. If it's an event where we feel abandoned, disappointed, where someone has injured us or left us or we feel heartbroken about an event in uh, our relational life, the chest muscles will contract. And that's why we call it heartbreak. Heartbreak is very, very real. It's a term that human beings give to when the vagal vagus nerve clenches the chest to let us know that we've been deeply disappointed by an event in our interpersonal life. So this practice never stops throughout all of our life. We're constantly signaling ourselves in our body. And we also use the smart vagus. This is the old vagus. And the smart vagus is the facial expressions. When I'm sad, I frown. When I'm happy, I smile. When I'm elated, there'll be a change in my facial muscle expressions. And that's how I signal to you and start to externalize my state of being, how safely connected to the tribe and other people I am. This is why emotions are not just for us, they're to connect us with other people. We spend the first four years of our life entirely connecting in the most meaningful way through emotions. Children can, around the age of one and a half or two, start developing words, but they're actually not connecting with caretakers in any meaningful way through language until much later. This is because they're still, up until the age of five, using the right hemisphere, which is largely somatic and physical and emotional, well-connected to the emotional circuits. So for the first four years of our life, we establish connection with other people without language, using facial expressions, using body language, using stomping and screaming and crying and shouting. And what we're doing is we're seeing and learning how to emotionally connect with the world without any language. And that the degree to which these emotions are well seen and mirrored by the people around us 
in a very large and meaningful way will determine our happiness for the rest of our lives. Luckily, even if we're not surrounded by a lot of mirroring, I grew up in an alcoholic household, and so there was a lot of times where there wasn't secure mirroring, but we can actually, at any point in our life, begin the process of healthy connecting. It's not, fortunately for us, the brain is what's called neuroplastic. We can rewire it at any age. But the most important years for emotional connection happen around two. Unfortunately, we don't actually meaningfully gain memories until around the age of four and a half or five. Now, you might say, one, why is this? And two, you might say, but I'm pretty sure I can remember things before that age. Well, actually, the reason why it's very difficult to remember anything before four and a half or five is because you're not using the left hemisphere, which is where all of your volitional memory systems are. Your right hemisphere doesn't actually have volitional memory systems, and that's what you're using in the first four years of your life. There's a great migration of consciousness that happens at around five, where you start to move into the areas of the brain which have been slowly, very slowly wiring up for language and logic and narrative and plans and stuff like that. And when you finally move into it, that's when you start to develop memories that you'll be able to recall uh, in any volitional way. The emotional mind can recall memories, but they're what's called flashbulb. Generally, the memories we recall of any events that happened to us before the age of five are what's called mask memories. They're largely constructed, and they're, entire, they're largely unreliable. But to the degree that they are true, they're based on little flashbulb images that were recalled by the right hemisphere. So what does emotional health look like, and what does emotional uh, disrepair look like? What's the best case scenario, and what's the worst case scenario? Well, suppose you're a two-year-old, and you're in the park, and you see a scary dog, and you come running to your mother or your father, and you're crying. Psychological health is built with, on experiences like this. You have a core affect, in this case, which is fear, you're crying, and you're running to your parent. At this point, your parent gives you a positive reception, which means they see, they attune, they patiently look at you, they take in your emotion, and then they mirror it back. They go, oh, you saw a scary dog. And then they mark it with a sense that we're okay. After they give you the scared face, they give you, but it's okay, I'm here, the dog won't get you. This positive reception allows you to experience what's called positive secondary emotions. You'll feel confident. You'll feel safe. You'll feel you belong to other people. You'll feel secure. And this will allow you to open up and take risks with communicating with other people in your life. Obviously, this is, I just described a single event. But this event happens over and over and over again with different emotions. And to the extent that these different emotions are seen by the people around you and mirrored, you will feel permitted then as you go off to school 
and different environments to connect with other people, to express yourself. But what happens if we're in not so healthy emotional environments? Suppose, for example, as in my case, uh, whenever I would feel some sense of uh, uh, disappointment as a child. My parents were immigrants. They really were wonderful in so many ways, definitely tried to create a secure household, worked very hard, uh, and really uh, wanted desperately to assimilate to American culture. It was very important for them to achieve a safe household. But as a result, whenever as a child I expressed any form of disappointment, instead of getting those kind of positive responses where they would see emotionally look at me, mirror it, and make me feel safe, they generally gave me a very judgmental look, a sense of, why are you so selfish? For some reason, my mom uh, would always say, um, whenever I would complain about uh, what you know we would have for dinner, which children will do, she'd immediately bring up starving children in Eastern Europe. At that point, I had no concept of, I was four years or five years old, just, you know, learning language, and already she was, you know, guilting in uh, the best tradition. But what happens when we don't receive mirroring is that we have negative responses. We learn to repress and hold off those emotions. We learn to shut them down. We learn to stop expressing those emotions which lead to judgment or rejection or being ignored or being not seen by the people around us. So we develop what are called in psychology defenses. We start to defend against our own natural emotions. All human beings, no matter how well your parents did or how much they struggled, all human beings have certain emotions that our parents were good with receiving and other emotions not so good. We're all somewhere on a sliding scale. And it all depends on uh, our, the family structures and what we were accustomed to. And then in our, uh, when we went to school, how our peers related to us and how teachers related to us. And then there's issues of gender, and race and ethnicity that come in as well. Certain groups of people are not allowed to express the same emotions that other groups are. Women in our misogynist culture are very often conditioned away from expressing natural anger, and anger is an entirely natural and important emotion. Men, on the other hand, are conditioned away from expressing fear and sadness. In my peer group, which was in the 1970s and uh, was at the dawning of the punk age, the emotions that were easily mirrored by other people and rewarded was toughness, coolness, self-sufficiency, shrugging it off, and anger and rage. And all those were well-received. But any form of Uh, loneliness or sadness or vulnerability, especially amongst my male peers in punk bands, 
was not well received and I learned very quickly to defend against those emotions that were not well received. Of the probably 40 or 50 people I work with on a one-on-one basis, many are women and many, many come without the ability to safely feel and connect with their own anger and to use their anger in a healthy way to draw good boundaries in their life and to express disappointment when the people in their lives act in unsafe ways. So a lot of my work is getting people to learn how to be with, hold, connect with their emotions, and express those emotions in ways. No human emotion is wrong, ever. But what does happen is When early on in life we're told certain emotions are not allowed, let's use, for example, um, anger as an example, we'll develop defenses against anger when we start to feel it because we've been told so often we're not allowed to have that natural human emotion. Then what we'll do is we'll develop certain maladaptive strategies. Maladaptive means that later on in life they cause a lot of suffering. All maladaptive strategies at one point are adaptive. They work in our families. They work in our schools. But they're maladaptive in adult life. So we all develop ways to survive our childhood that set very strong patterns that very often later on in life actually to, I hope you don't mind me say, bite us on our ass. Here are some of the ways we learn to survive. Perfectionism, the idea that we have to present to our parents or to other kids a perfect version of ourselves where we don't make mistakes, where we always show our parents how well we're doing. And that, of course, might help us survive our childhood. But then what happens as adults when we go off into the world and we can never, from that point on, try anything new? Because guess what? when we try to learn something new, we're going to suck at it. If I tried to learn how to, uh, which I did actually, in my 40s I learned to skateboard. And I would have to get on the skateboard and there would be 10 year olds whizzing by me laughing and ridiculing me. And it required developing this thick skin and this willingness to not be good at it. And it brought up all those feelings of my dad who would get very frustrated whenever he tried to teach me how to ride a bike or to do anything. He would essentially give up because he got very frustrated with the fact that I couldn't do it. <laughs> he sort of assumed that it would be a na- everything would be a natural skill. So um, the idea of, of sucking in public required me to do a lot of practice so that I could feel okay with looking bad at something. People-pleasing, in psychology it's known as reaction formation, it's always showing a kind of emotional state that other people we believe want to see. A smile, or looking happy to see people when we're in fact sad. Uh, It helps us survive again, our early jobs, our family systems, But to the degree that we feel we can only survive and get happiness in the world by presenting a mask sets us up for loneliness, isolation, lack of connection. Cut off 
is when certain people in our life make us feel uncomfortable and rather than learning how to work through and express and set boundaries and express our disappointment, we cut those people off from our lives. And my family was cut off from a lot of our relatives. I remember as a kid, the phone would ring and I, w- I would go to answer it and my mom would say, don't answer it. And I'd say, why? What's, what's going on? She said, oh, it's your Uncle Morris. I mean, well, he wants to talk. He's like, nah, he probably is calling with some issue or something. So because my mom would get anxious, she learned to cut off people. When people would, when anger would come up, rather than learn to express it, she would cut those people off. Grandiosity is a form of compensation for the inability to fulfill our needs amongst other people. And so we harbor fantasies of success or living somewhere else or being somewhere else. One of the most uh, common is called excessive caretaking. That's when we uh, give up expressing our own emotions and our own needs and we start caretaking for other people as a way to maintain relationships without expressing our needs our desires, our lack of fulfillment. So, the longer we repress certain emotions, certain feelings, certain natural impulses, many people use these techniques to, Im- to suppress their sexuality or their impulses to be creative. If you grow up in a family that rewards being in business and you secretly want to be a modern dancer, you might have to suppress those impulses to survive. So the more we repress, the more dysregulated emotions become. I wish I could say that they go away, but actually the right hemisphere is timeless. Events and things that we repress 40, 50 years ago are just as vibrant and feel just as fresh when they're activated today. Freud called the unconscious the timeless realm, and every study shows that he was correct. The emotional mind doesn't age. The emotions that we squelch decades ago are still there, and they can rise up and essentially uh, overwhelm us when events happen that remind us of those suppressed energies. Let me give you an example. You've probably, by this point in your life, have met somebody at one point who's been through a very short-term relationship, a relationship that lasted maybe two weeks, and then they go through a breakup, the relationship falls apart, and they're distraught, absolutely distraught. They fall apart. And it's tempting to go, well, what the hell is going on here? I mean, they were only dating for two weeks. Why is my friend completely depressed, drinking themselves, silly, you know, uh, cutting themselves off? Why are they so upset? Well, what's happened is the entire history of unprocessed rejections has been activated in the emotional mind and is attached to this event and has become activated. It's not about the current event. It's about an entire history of emotional experiences we haven't allowed ourselves to feel because we've learned never to experience, hold, 
and express our sadness or disappointment. And so as an adult, when we go through a relationship breakup, then suddenly it floods. Another example is when people repress their anger. And over time, uh, the person at work who has an abusive boss who's always shouting and yelling and they, can't, they feel they can't talk back, and then eventually they come home and they start breaking down a wall or kicking a dog or doing something horrible that they feel ashamed about because the entire history of abusive people in their life that they never learned to express their anger comes flooding back as rage. The more we repress, the more when natural human emotions are activated, the more dysregulated they will be. And so, not just for the health of our interactions with people we care about and work with and love, the more we learn to connect with our emotions, hold them, be with them, the healthier we will be, and then we can complete the process of emotion regulation and bonding through once we've felt those emotions, which will be the first part of this day, then we learn to express those emotions to other people. So much of my work, people come to me and they're looking for a way to not do any of this. Basically, the bulk of the people that come to work with me or come to Dharma Punks or Against the Stream or any of the other places I teach essentially have one agenda and one agenda only, which is, can you, make, can you give me a meditation that will make my unhappiness, my sadness, my anger, my frustration, my loneliness go away, please? Can you help me, can you give me another tool that will help me repress these feelings so that I don't have to be with them and that I, so that I don't have to take the risk of authentically expressing them to another human being and meaningfully connect. We call it the spiritual bypass. Most people come to spiritual practice with the hope that there will be a meditation or a prayer that will magically alleviate feelings. The real underlying motivation for the spiritual bypass is that very few of us want to sit with uncomfortable feelings and even fewer want to actually take the risk of expressing those emotions to other people because we've all been in our lives so wounded by the times we tried to express our feelings and received indifference or outright abandonment. So the latter part will be in the afternoon, but the first part of learning how to feel and connect with emotions will be what we're discussing right now. Insight, which is the brand of meditation I teach, which is um, an offshoot of what's called a Theravada tradition, which is the Buddhism of Southeast Asia, places like Thailand, Sri Lanka, Burma, Vietnam, Cambodia, etc., is a practice that was, is specifically uh, valuable because it allows us to be with emotions and buried impulses and feelings that we haven't learned to connect with in a safe and meaningful way. And so actually it gives us the ability to create what we call a safe container a way to hold 
our emotions in a way that we don't become overwhelmed again. Many people resist the idea of connecting with the feelings, emotions, the wounds of the past because there's this sense that if we open that door, they'll push us down and we'll become completely flooded with emotions that we can't regulate. It's a realistic and a very understandable concern. Fortunately, one of the, tool, the tools that insight gives us allows us to be with emotions in a way that we have probably not been uh, taught before and creates an entirely safe way to experience these emotions. In fact, uh, somebody I work with is, uh, in this tradition, a friend, did this work with vets from Afghanistan who had been through some of the most traumatic, horrific experiences a human being could go through, seeing extreme uh, violence right in front of their eyes on a repeated basis, and used insight and mindfulness as a technique to help them work with their PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, and found that even the most traumatic emotional experiences can be worked with if we learn how. Now the key with insight practice is that it breaks down emotional experience into different components. We don't deal with the emotion in its entirety. We first feel it in the body and then in the breath as well. And then we feel it as feelings and states of mind, agitation. We don't encounter the emotion in its totality. So for instance, if I was having a panic attack right now, uh, thankfully I'm not, but if I were, what would happen is my breath would start to become rapid and shallow, my chest would tighten, my throat would start to contract, and then my, aware, my mind would start to jump around, and then I'd start to have repetitive thoughts, like, oh, I'm losing it, I'm losing it, I'm falling apart, etc. Now, if I attended to the, all that experience, the panic attack would become overwhelming, and I wouldn't be able to process it, and I'd go into a fully-fledged need to, you know, etc., run away, hide, you know, or I would start to have some kind of uh, dysregulated experience. But on the other hand, suppose I'm having the activations of a panic attack and I just notice, okay, breath beginning to get rapid. How can I be with that breath? How can I notice it? And how can I gently extend it, the out-breath a little longer? Okay, chest tight. How can I open up my chest? How can I soften my belly? So I'm just with the physical sensations of anxiety. I'm not working on anything else. Then I'm going to notice, after I've been with the body for a while, then I'm going to notice what kind of states are going on in the mind. Is my mind jumping about from one thought to another? Then I say, okay, I'm going to settle my awareness on one experience right now. I'm going to right now just focus on what's going on in my face and I'm going to settle the mind and I'm just going to notice how my mind doesn't want to be with what's going on in my face but I'm just going to keep it there. And then I'm going to notice what kind of thoughts 
comprise panic. And instead of pushing them away or arguing with them, I'm just going to observe them. I was going to say, okay, now I'm going to focus on the thoughts. What are you trying to tell me? How can I say yes, welcome, be with you? When people practice this way, it's been found that they can actually meaningfully reduce panic attacks, anxiety attacks. Most of us, however, just when we start to feel panic and anxiety, deal with it as this global experience, working with the thoughts, the feelings, the breath, the body, all at once, and we become overwhelmed. So I'm going to teach you this method, but I'm going to use an easier version of it. Fortunately, there is a practice called RAIN, which was developed by a woman named Michelle McDonald and popularized by another wonderful teacher named Tara Brock. And Tara Brock is one of the great teachers in our inside tradition. And this practice, RAIN, is a very easy pro process of connecting with emotions, holding them, and alleviating them so that we can then later on connect with other people and express our emotions safely. So, um, the four steps of RAIN go as follows. It's an acronym in case you haven't guessed, which means each letter of RAIN stands for something. And acronyms are almost invariably terrible things. Generally, one word of every acronym doesn't make any sense at all. But fortunately, this acronym works pretty well. R means recognize, and it simply means stopping and recognizing whatever emotional state we're in. So when in a strong feeling or impulse uh, arises, simply instead of pushing it away or trying to distract ourselves by going on Facebook or Twitter or you know CNN or Amazon to buy something or whatever we might do, we instead stop and we simply say, okay, worry, financial worry. That's what's happening. So we're no longer uh, turning away, trying to distract, trying to suppress, trying to repress. We're actually simply recognizing what's going on. We're giving it a very simple name. Now, when very strong emotions are present, it's helpful to know the difference between self-soothing and self-numbing. Self-numbing is an attempt to get rid of whatever emotion or feeling or mood you're in. So if you feel lonely, you might immediately jump on social media. You might start wanting to text somebody or go on Facebook to feel the sense of connection, or you might want to turn on the television. Some people, when they feel lonely, start to binge eat start to look for the Oreos or the Doritos or whatever and fill ourselves up to create the feeling of being ca taken care of. That's self-numbing. Self-numbing is any attempt to get rid of an emotion. Self-numbing leads to enormous psychological problems down the road. In the short term, having a drink when we feel angry makes us feel the anger go away and it seems like it works, but guess what? If you start to rely on uh, alcohol or social media or shopping or binge eating or any other tool to get rid of your feelings, they become dysregulated. They don't go away. They actually, in the background of your right hemisphere, grow 
worse and worse and more and more dysregulated. And when the loneliness comes up in the future, it's not just a little loneliness, it's feelings of great isolation and disconnection. When anger is not processed, it comes back up as rage and violence. So putting off feeling anything is not in our best interest. Self-soothing, on the other hand, is a very good strategy. Self-soothing means if we're in the presence of a very strong emotion to create the safest and most, uh, in terms of sensations, comfortable environment to be with the emotion. So, for instance, I knew a guy who, whose um, fiancé quite suddenly um, became sick and died uh, before their wedding. And, um, of course, his grief was agonizing. But he found that he couldn't process his grief alone in his apartment. The only way he could be with the grief would be to go to the beach, lie down at Fort Tilden, and feel the warmth of the sun on his body, the sand, the, himself breathing. The being at the beach created just enough of a safe container that he could process his grief. So there are times in our life when we feel a strong emotion that simply staying in our living room or our bedroom or in a familiar place, our office, might not be the best solution. We might want to take a walk outside and just sit on the bench overlooking the Hudson. We might want to go to a place where we feel safe and just feel uh, uh, the safe container of a more pleasant sensation so that we can then turn to the emotion. So recognizing is simply knowing and then finding a good place to be with that emotion. A is allowing then the emotion to continue to arise or the impulse. This doesn't mean we agree with the emotion. So, so for instance, suppose you have a relative that every time you see that relative, there's feelings of not being heard or seen or appreciated. And then when you're with them, you feel this familiar tug of, this person really doesn't acknowledge any of my efforts. They constantly talk over me. They constantly don't listen. So what we might want to do... Uh, feel is the desire at first to just leave or cut off this person or run away or avoid the situation. Allowing actually means we, even in the family gathering, we go away, we sit for a while, we take a little break, and we feel disappointed, we feel frustrated, we feel not heard, and we ask the body, how does it really feel? And we allow the discomfort to appear and to express itself. Allow, we relax the areas around the emotion. So if I'm feeling really unheard by a friend, not appreciated, very often I'll feel it in a tightness in my throat and a tightness in my forehead. So I'll really allow those areas of my body to express the emotion. But then what I'll do is I will relax the arms and the legs and every other part of my body so that the tightness in the throat and the face can fully express themselves. So I'm trying to be as comfortable as I can while at the same time I'm not pushing away the emotion from experiencing itself.
I means investigate. Rather than pushing away after we allow, we ask the emotion, really, what does it want to tell us? How does it feel to not be seen? How does it feel to be lonely? How does it feel to be frustrated? How does it feel to be angry? How does it feel to be uncomfortable? How does it feel to be uh, not cared about? Ask. The beautiful thing about questions is that it helps us put aside other thoughts and helps us focus on the emotion itself. And it shows the emotion which we've very often been running our entire lives from that we're now willing to connect with it. Many of us have been running from our emotions since childhood. We were taught that one emotion was really not safe and we've been running from it ever since using all kinds of variety of tools to suppress those emotions and the ability to stop and turn and say, okay, I care about you. I really care about my fear, my financial fear, my fear of not being connected, my fear of what's going to happen to me. Being able to be with that, turn towards it, create a place where we can say, okay, what do you need from me? How can I take care of you? That turns into nurturing, the final N in RAIN. So investigate how does it feel, and then asking what do you need? How can I take care of you? How can I meet your needs? So I'd like to now do this practice for a little while, and then we'll have time for um, questions about anything that I've talked about, and then we'll have a walking meditation outside where we'll get to take in the day and uh, enjoy the weather, and uh, we'll do an even different practice. So, find a really comfortable seated position. And for this one meditation, it would be helpful to close the eyes. For the other meditations we do today, feel free to keep the eyes open. But just for this one, indulge me and see if you can close your eyes. And I'd like us to each visualize a recent event that happened that created a feeling of disappointment so an experience with another person that created an experience of disappointment. Somebody who acted in a selfish way or didn't hear our needs or um, in some way felt to us selfish or uncaring. A disappointment with a friend or relative or family member. Bringing to mind a single static image, a photograph in your mind of that person. And just holding it there 
without going into the story of all the interaction, what they said and what I said and what I should have said, just put all that aside and just hold a really resonant image. Just remind yourself of the emotion that's present when you think of this event. Give it the first, easiest, without being worrying about what's wrong or right. Just give it a title. Disappointment. Rejection. Hurt. Frustration. Anger. And just allow whatever needs to appear in the body, whatever our thoughts have been pulling us away from, allow your awareness to go into the body, into the breath, and see if you start to feel any shift when you think about this event. And if it doesn't arise, if you don't feel anything, you can ask some questions. How does it feel to be not listened to? How does it feel to be not taken care of? How does it feel to be pushed aside? Any question that might activate some feeling. Now, for some of us, this might take a bunch of time because sometimes we've learned to so separate ourselves from certain painful feelings that even though really hurtful events can happen in our lives, we might not feel it in the body. We might just immediately want to go into the story, repeating what happened, going up into the language parts of the brain, the storytelling parts of the brain, not feeling what's going on in the body. It's a very basic form of pushing things away, and it happens. But eventually in this practice, you'll start to feel some contraction, a tightness in the stomach, a tightness in the throat, a muscle maybe in the forehead or uh, some activation around your eyes. You might feel your jaws lock when you think of somebody who's been unkind. You might feel your breath changing or your shoulders tighten. Whatever appears, don't push it away.
Just welcome whatever you feel. Welcome any emotion you feel, any mood. And finally, take care of it rather than judge how you feel. Ask if it's anger or disappointment or loneliness. Whatever it's experiencing, just ask, how can I take care of this feeling? How can I take care of you? I won't abandon you. I won't push you away. So if it's anger, we might need to promise it that we'll set better boundaries. If it's loneliness, we might have to tell it that we will connect, find support. If it's grief, we might need to promise it will spend more time holding and connecting or expressing this grief in a safe environment. So in a moment I'm going to ring the bowl and just gently release any image and if there was any feeling that appeared, any mood or emotion, impulse, thank it. We can spend so much of our lives running from these feelings that it can take a lot of practice before they appear and anytime they do, it's worth really thanking them because we've spent so much of our lives often saying, no, I can't feel this way. So now we're moving on to the second part of the practice. Um, so far we've talked about connecting with emotions. Um, and Kathy talked about deactivating when we are uh, stressed, which is will be very useful, not just in um, our interpersonal laws, but in just uh, especially when there isn't somebody there around us to help us deal when we feel activated. But really the, um, so the, the final part of the picture, which is not too often discussed in uh, retreats and gatherings and uh, spiritual communities, is the absolutely central role in connecting with each other as support and how to do that in a safe way so that we 
essentially as human beings get our needs met. Um, before I launch into that, I should say that there's so much research now about how healing disclosing is to other our emotions, our feelings, our experience, and then how, on the other hand, how disruptive and damaging concealment is, which means not talking about what's going on in our life. Um, Anita Kelly of Notre Dame, who's the head of the psychology research, shows that um, concealing creates, uh, uh, is uh, comorbid with depression and anxiety. Pennebaker, the University of Texas, who wrote a wonderful book called Opening Up, talks about the relationship between hypertension, stress, and reduced immune function, and people who simply connect well versus people who don't. Vince Gilligan, if that name sounds familiar, he's the guy who created the show Breaking Bad, so he's not a psychologist, but I like dropping him in. He said that the key to all successful TV drama is the fact that one character uh, creates or keeps a secret from everybody else around. And that for us, drama and the thing that um, creates for him the most exciting television is one character keeping a secret, but he also notes that in real life it's about the worst thing that a human being can do. Withholding uh, what happens is the brain fights with itself, and there's a whole field of research started by Dan Wagner, recently deceased um, uh, chair of uh, Harvard Psychology Department, who wrote a great book called White Bears. And he shows that what happens when we don't share something is that one part of the cingulate in the right hemisphere keeps on activating that thing. And then there's the left hemisphere, which tries to override it and tries to focus on something else. So for example, most people, not all, but many people express uh, discomfort in speaking in public. In fact, oddly enough, in many uh, studies, people say that they would rather die than speak in public, which has always struck me as a uh, kind of odd, but uh, it goes to show that many of us worry about how we present to other people and the amount of anxiety that we feel about speaking in front of large groups is significant. And of course, what most people don't know is that there's a very simple tool to alleviate stage fright speaking in front of public. What do you think that tool is? Breathing? Okay. What do you think? Doing it, that's good, okay. I've already given you the hint, but I'm going to see if somebody figured. What? In what way? You're getting close. That would be helpful, but there's really something that's, that studies have shown again and again is the single greatest alleviator of stage fright and speaking in public. <laughs> nice one. Uh, absolutely, but that can be activating as well because people, when they do eye contact, they 
activate a part of their brain that actually can create a lot of stress as well if they start to see any expression that seems negative. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But clearly we like to, we, we are all doing that because it's the most common, uh, all right, I'll tell you. Bourbon. What? Bourbon. <laughs> Getting warmer. Uh, so the actual, the secret is, and they've tested this against every other solution, including uh, anxiolytics like uh, benzodiazepines and, and alcohol and and uh, co-presenting. The single technique that works the best is getting up in front of people and simply saying, I don't like to do this. Believe it or not, the simple method of acknowledging one's frightened of doing something actually alleviates it. Well, why is that? It's actually because so much of anxiety and stress is caused from the effort and energy that we put into withholding the information from other people. If I was nervous doing this right now, I would have to do a couple of different things if I didn't share with you the fact that I was nervous. What would I have to do? One, I would be aware that I was anxious, but then two, I would have to conceal that fact and paste on a smile. Meanwhile, three, I would have to look at each of you and see if any of you were cottoning onto the fact that I was nervous and so four, what I've just created is cognitive overload. I'm dividing my mind be three, between three separate tasks before I even get to the task of telling you anything. So Wegner showed that, in fact, he did a wonderful test. He read a, a quote in Dostoevsky, uh, and Dostoevsky wrote um, in his diaries, there's nothing more impossible to do than to not think about polar bears once you've set that task for yourself. So Wagner read that and he thought, wow, that's really fascinating. And what he did was he uh, started a study uh, trial with his own graduate students. And he split them into two groups. One group, he said, don't think about polar bears. And the other group, he said, think about polar bears as much as you want. And then what he did is he put a little button by their side, and he had them free associate, but he gave them one instruction. He uh, said, well, whenever you think about polar bears or white bears, push the button. And so all he had to do in the study is count the amount of times people would think about white bears or polar bears. So guess what? The group of people who he said not to think about polar bears, thought about polar bears twice as often than the people he gave permission to think about polar bears. Now what this means is that whenever we set a task to ourselves to not think about something, we have immediately screwed ourselves over. Whenever you have a thought that you don't want to think, you can immediately gain an advantage simply by saying, okay, I'll think about this thought as much as I want. Frankly, simply doing that will remove all of the repression, all of the activity that your left and right are at war doing, and you will find that once you welcome that thought, it will actually start to dissipate. And 
In case you're wondering, was this just one test? No, this test has been duplicated now thousands of times to the point that there's now a field of study called thought suppression. And again and again, they find that Wagner's study holds up, which is that the first step is to um, allow the thought, but then the second process is to talk to somebody and say that you have that thought present. When we acknowledge a thought, a motion, a feeling, an impulse to another human being, we complete the circuit. Much of the time, an idea or an impulse simply is seeking to be heard. That's what human beings deeply most seek, is ourselves and another human being to listen to us. So you, there's studies with people who have what seem to be uh, with OCD and Tourette's and related, sim, uh, related disorders who seem to have terrible thoughts. They have thoughts about violence against their own children or running out in public, you know, and you know, screaming or assaulting people. But they find out, in fact, that when these people simply in support groups share these impulses, that they don't act them out. That really the core of the impulses we have is to be heard by another human being, to be received. The emotional brain takes about a tenth of a second to express itself. The conscious brain takes about a half second. So what it means is that there's a fourth of a, or a four tenths of a second between you having an impulse and your ability to try to override it. Now that's enough time for you to try to uh, conceal it, but actually your brain has already had four tenths of a second to visually express already your emotional state. Uh, a guy named Gottman did studies where he showed that we're constantly in micro, you know, split seconds expressing our feelings to each other. And that's why we can have really uncomfortable feelings around other people, because unconsciously we're picking up on the fact that their micro-expressions, that four-tenths of a second, is expressing an emotion that they're concealing from us. Consciously, we're not fast enough most of the time to pick up the fact that somebody is saying, I'm fine, when in fact they're angry, or they're disappointed, or they're sad, or they're lonely. But your, left, your right hemisphere, which Kahneman shows has the faster circuits of your brain, is actually all the time looking at other people and seeing the truths, is seeing the micro-expressions that they're flashing. In his study, Gottman studied um, couples, and he filmed these micro-expressions, and he showed that the more that people were signaling each other in ways that were not matching up to their actual feelings, which means they were repressing and not expressing the way they feel, um, the more those relationships failed. Now, consciously, they wouldn't be able to express why, but unconsciously, each member of, the cu of each couple was reading the fact that the other person wasn't being completely honest and the stress and the disappointment was building up. If you want to read his studies, there's actually a really fascinating um, summary of it in Malcolm Gladwell's book, Blink, which is a wonderful, easy read and he goes over Gottman's work. So undisclosed 
emotions uh, take havoc in our lives. They maintain the early expectations and maladaptive coping strategies of childhood, and they keep us trapped in those coping strategies rather than allow us to grow and heal. Virtually all maladaptive coping strategies boil down to the feeling that we cannot safely express the way we feel to other human beings. Perfectionism, caretaking, intellectualization, people-pleasing, um, uh, avoidance coping. I could go through the list of all of the maladaptive coping strategies that cause us suffering in our life, and they all boil down to the feeling that we're not safe enough to express ourselves to other human beings. So disclosing is cathartic. In fact, uh, probably the only reason why 12-step groups work so well as they do is they create a safe environment where addicts and people who are suffering from addictions can go in a safe place and express the way they feel to each other. There's a saying even in 12-step communities, you're only as sick as your secrets, acknowledging the very basic truth that human beings are set up to naturally seek other people to share and unburden our hearts with. A North Carolina study of 331 people showed that those who believe that they regularly share their secrets are 350% healthier. I think they actually found that actually they were 350% less likely to die in any given year. So there's a significant health benefit. Yale found that the more people regularly disclose their emotions to each other, the far fewer heart blockages people had, and that's after they ruled out every other genetic factor. Johns Hopkins in the 1940s interviewed 1,100 students and 50 years later tracked them down and found that those who reported having secure relationships with other people were by far and away the most likely to have survived the 50 years since graduating from college. So human beings are meant to connect. If you want to read more about these studies, uh, there's a, a, a summary of them in Amy Banks, Dr. Amy Banks' book, Wired to Connect, and Susan Pinker's book, The Village Effect, which goes over the importance of connecting with other people. So why is it, though, that we withhold regularly important experiences, the fact that we are having insomnia, that we're sad, that we have gone through a disappointment, that we're struggling in our relationships? Why is it that given how, um, I would say, the most central import in terms of human happiness is connecting, why is it that we so regularly withhold from each other our true emotional states? The answer is actually fairly straightforward. Just as rewarding and healing as revealing to each other and how much it regulates us uh, sharing our emotions is, conversely, the experience of going to another human being and not being tolerated, having our emotions and our feelings rejected or criticized or not taken seriously, to have what Gottman calls the four 
horsemen of, uh, I think, uh, I don't remember what he calls them, the four horsemen of something, uh, essentially, uh, which he says are contempt, uh, eye-rolling and stonewalling, criticism, and uh, I think uh, might be instruction when somebody tells you what to do rather than listen to your feelings. Uh, sometimes these days called mansplaining. Uh, so what, uh, what happens there is extremely painful because it brings up all those times in our life where we deeply wanted to express and share uh, emotional states with other people and instead from people that we depended on we received indifference or criticism or they simply didn't pay attention. Three out of the four core human anxieties that are throughout our lives have to do with this fear of separation and rejection. The first human anxiety is simply annihilation. All human beings have, to a simple degree, a worry about being destroyed, killed, annihilated. But the, the, last, the other three are separation anxiety, neurotic anxiety, and deep compensation. Those are the four human anxieties. So what are they? Separation anxiety is the fear that children have of being separated by, from a caretaker. Neurotic anxiety, and I like to feel as a uh, Upper West Side New York Jew, which I am, that I own neurotic anxiety, uh, it's the fear that something in me will come out, an impulse or an emotion, that you'll see it and that you won't like me and that you will not want to be with me. It's kind of what I like to think of as the adult anxiety, the thing that governs much of our lives, that if we express something or reveal something about ourselves that other people won't tolerate it and won't want to be around us and that we'll wind up feeling the same kind of painful social exclusion that we experienced as children in schoolyards when we were in fourth grade and the cool girls or guys wouldn't allow us to be part of their group. The last anxiety, in case you're wondering, is decompensation, which is the feel of mentally falling apart and not being able to put ourselves back together in a way that will get love and acceptance from other people. So there we have it again, the fear of rejection, the fear that other people will not want to be with us, the fear of isolation, social exclusion. Let's face it, as pack animals, as social beings, which human beings are, the most painful thing for each of us is the experience of not being welcome, accepted, or wanted. So what do we need to get to overcome this anxiety? Well, the same thing exactly that children need. Our, what we need in adult life doesn't change. We're seeking really three things, so that it's very easy to remember these three things. The first is attunement and proximity, which simply means we want somebody to listen and maintain eye contact and not to interrupt us and not to give us the telltale signs that they're losing interest. So this might sound simpler than it is. Kathy, I need a volunteer, so I'm going to come up here. So I'm going to do the kind of standard, and all you're going to have to do is, hi, how's it going? It's so nice to see you. 
What's going on with you? I don't know. That kind of thing. I Which think is, both. I've yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but keep on. Oh, uh, well, you know, I've been working a lot and I've been heading off to teach and. Uh, that kind of thing. Yeah. I'm immediately beginning to abandon Stonewall, pull away, look at my text. I'm pretending to listen but I'm already beginning to shift my attention away to look for other stimuli or permission to leave. So what I've already done to Kathy is I've already abandoned her. I've already cut off the two minutes. <laughs> you can go away now. <laughs> How long have <laughs> 15 years. Um, Yeah, <laughs> proximity and, and attunement are um, key. The child, and for all of our lives, we're really seeking somebody to simply be there, maintain eye contact, and listen. Many of us unconsciously have been trained to believe that when somebody brings um, their sadness, their pain, their discomfort to us, that we feel a strong impulse to make it go away. Now, I don't mean that in a bad way. We generally think of it in terms of cheering other people up, telling them what to do, trying to uh, make them feel better. The very impulse to make somebody who's sad or activated feel better actually is, unfortunately, a form of abandonment. Here's what I mean. If I, uh, in a meeting with somebody, comes and this person starts to talk to me about uh, their stress in work and the fact that they don't like their job or they feel overwhelmed, and if my first impulse is to say, well, you should talk to your boss or you should get another job, I might feel that I'm doing something that's helpful I might feel that I'm picking up their spirits or doing something that's, that is in some way shows that I care. But in fact, what I'm doing is I'm cutting them off. Because really what that person is trying to do very often is simply bring to us a disappointing experience in their life for mirroring. They simply want to be heard. Many people secretly when they come and they say, I'm really unhappy in my job, they really simply want somebody to hear about their stresses. They actually aren't looking for a new job. They're not looking for anything different. They simply want normal human emotion regulation, which means expressing the feeling without any feedback whatsoever. As certainly a man in our culture, I feel like I was very conditioned by my parents to try to immediately cheer people up or say something encouraging. And it took me quite a long time in my training to learn how to create a safe space where somebody could come to me and talk to me about the fact that they were upset in a relationship, a job, a family matter. Uh, they felt frustrated in their life and not immediately go into the well, here's what you should do. And of course, uh, another example of when we feel this impulse to get rid of other people's emotions is when somebody we know is experiencing grief. 
the most common thing we are trained to say uh, is to look when somebody goes through a breakup to say something like uh, akin to, well, there are other fish in the sea, something along that lines. And when somebody goes through a loss, we feel conditioned very often to say something like, well, at least he got to travel to Paris or he lived a long life. And it might seem to us that we're doing some kind of service in that situation. And we might even really be consciously motivated by a desire to alleviate some form of pain. But actually all we're doing is we're cutting off what that person needs most, which is their natural human need to simply express what emotional state they're in. And if I, instead of trying to fix or solve or tell them what to do, if I simply create space for them, and at the most I can ask, would it be more helpful for you if I just listened to right now, or what would make you feel like your needs were met in this conversation? That way, I won't go into being instructive or giving a solution when somebody really most needs a safe container simply to express what's going on. So that's the first thing. We all simply need somebody to pay attention, to stay present with us, to be attuned. The human right hemisphere of the brain, when somebody sits next to us and maintains eye contact, immediately starts um, reducing the activation of the right of uh, the right dorsal anterior cingulate cortex. Wish they named these things a little easier, but it actually deactivates the moment we start feeling proximity and attunement. The second thing we're looking for is sympathy. Sympathy is simply the signs that somebody has listened to what we say and rather than gives an instruction can somewhat in some verbal way express the, point, the part that they get it. They get how difficult our life is. They get what we're up against. So sympathy is akin to, wow, that sounds really overwhelming. Wow, that sounds challenging. Wow, I, I hear that that's a lot to deal with. You don't have to summarize or tell. In fact, it's a, definitely not a good idea, but to just naturally indicate in some way that the content of what they've expressed has been understood. The third, though, is the most important. Studies of uh, Heinz Kohut and all of his research and research by Alan Shore have shown that empathy is the key healer. Empathy is when you express to me something that's sad or frustrating or loneliness or disappointment or anything that's going on in your life and my face in some way mirrors back that emotion even a little bit what that tells you unconsciously not really so much consciously but unconsciously is it tells you that whatever you're feeling is understood and is normal to in a degree that you're not alone that human emotion message that you are going through something that is not isolated, that other people have felt in some way similar emotions, is for our species one of the most important experiences that we can have. The work by Fanaghi, 
and Wallen showed that children who are well mirrored by their mothers, they literally study how well mothers mirror their children by expressing back the emotions that the child expresses to them. To the degree to which a mother can mirror that child is very formative in how much freedom the child feels to explore and connect with other people and to express its own emotions. Because when the mother says to the child, what you're feeling is okay, it's normal, there's nothing wrong with it, the child then goes out into the world with confidence and feels that it can express itself with other people. On the other hand, when we regularly get a lack of mirroring, when people don't listen to us with any sense of facial acknowledgement, when we talk again and again to people who are impassive or completely unmoved by what we say, we become slowly more and more armored and defensive, and we seek, uh, over time, uh, different ways to regulate our emotions. What are those ways? Well, we might become addicted to social media, or texting, we might become addicted to food, or to alcohol, or to drugs, or to shopping, or to gambling. We will look to substances rather than other human beings to regulate the painful emotions. We'll stop seeking connection, and we'll stop looking, we'll stop looking for um, uh, other ways. It's kind of tragic in the US in uh, populations of retired people, there's actually an epidemic of gambling addiction, which is kind of stunning, because uh, essentially people feel the lack of exciting, stimulating connections in their life, so they seek the release of dopamine through substitutes rather than getting together with other people and exploring new um, creative endeavors which are triggering, which trigger the release of dopamine. So, uh, once again, the keys to this uh, endeavor are simply three. We're all looking for somebody to maintain eye contact without pulling away, without beginning to shift the body, without any signs that they're impatient. What that requires from us is a kind of dedication to the belief that other people's emotions are important, just as important as ours. And when somebody comes to us to actually take the time to put aside the inner chatter, that inner feeling of, wait, wait, wait till you hear what I've got to say, or that inner feeling of wanting just to move things along, and to stay present with what's being